What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Joe Bonamassa here with another exciting episode of Live from Nerdville. Today, my special guest is legendary music journalist and all-around good guy, Mr. Bob Lefsetz. Thank you very much for doing this. I'm really, really honored to have you here, and thank you for having me on your podcast. That was that was a, a that was a blast. Well, the amazing thing is, with no coaching, you got my last name right. A lot of people, it, you pronounce it just like it's spelled, but a lot of people can't do that. The other thing is, I'm really into all that tweed fender gear you got behind you. That's pretty impressive. Thank you. This is you. Where I'm coming to you from, Los Angeles. This is where this is the the Bonazium, as they call it. And um, it's 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 when addiction becomes an obsession. And there's no authority figure to say, please stop what you're doing. You know, I, I'll, I'll turn the computer to show you the level of, of where we're at. So, whoa, 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 stay over there. Okay, the amps over there. Those are all one brand. Yeah, they're all Fender except for the big ones, which are uh, Marshall and uh, a subsidiary company called Park. Okay, I was just reading about Park. Tell me about Park because Park, they started with Marshall and then they stopped and then they started again, right? Well, basically, Park amps were to get around certain um, – uh, they made them. They're identical to Marshall's. They, they were to get around some – like exclusive licensing agreements that Marshall had within within England. So they just were going, hey, we could sell this amp twice. So they came up with a, a, a subsidiary brand. So they did a different cosmetic and they're basically Marshalls and and uh, you know this is this is 25 years of 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 collecting and and trying to I don't know I don't know who I'm trying to impress, but it is what it is. So anyway. Okay, okay. Just because I have this, you know, I moved about a year ago and the nature of my life is I get sent a lot of books mm -hmm. and I was deciding how many to keep. And my girlfriend said, everything's going digital. You don't need to keep anything anyway. I couldn't quite do that. It's hard for me to throw out a book, but I kept all of the music books because a lot of them will never go in print again. Yeah. And the guys at AEG before the uh, COVID, they say, we want to establish a library with all of those books, so people will have advantage. Will there ever be a time when people will be able to look at your gear? Yeah, I think so. Um, there's there's been talk of a museum that I would open. There's 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 been talk of you know. I mean, I'm not going to own this stuff forever. You know what I mean? There's there's a point of critical mass, and you know, it, it's going to go some. It's going to go to somebody else eventually, or or many people. There's hundreds of things that are. Around. Okay, if you had to put a value on it, and I'm sure it's insured, <laughs> what would you put a value on your equipment assets? More than um, the house, and it's a pretty nice house. So okay, uh, and the, the 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 thing about it is, you know, you never I never bought it as a as a you know like this, this wasn't like a 401k or a stock portfolio. I just bought it because I liked it, and and. You know, a lot of this stuff has gone up a lot since I that that I owned it. But I don't look at something and go, "Well, it's, this is what it's this is what it's worth today versus what it was worth." Um, you know, you know, twenty years ago. Speaking of that, I want to get to the news of the day. Okay, Bob Dylan sells right? his songs for rumor between there's a two in the first number, a three in the first number, and you know, you know, and New York Times said six. Yeah. So I mean, it's the truth lies somewhere in the middle. So so tell me, 
Now, there, there are artists out there that are going to say, okay, well, you know, there's only one Bob Dylan, 100%. But you're seeing, like, people like Stevie Nicks sell out. You're seeing, you know, Bob Dylan. You know, these are people in their, you know, in their 70s and legacy artists. And then there's the, the, the kind of uh, chorus of, well, you know, the, the record comes are just ripping us off. Streaming pays nothing. It's 0.004 cents per stream, blah, blah, blah. But why do you think record companies like Universal and these big holding companies are spending nine figures on catalog. Okay, let's separate some of the issues out. Let's keep streaming and record royalties and record ownership secondary. Let's just start about publishing. Publishing is a penny's business under the best of circumstances. But it pays, and in addition, now that we're in the streaming era, you will get paid on these songs until the end of copyright. And in the United States, copyright never seems to end as a result of the fact that Mickey Mouse was about to go in the public domain and Disney used its leverage to extend the Copyright Act. So essentially nothing of value seems to ever go into the public domain. Let's flip the story to economics. Money is a business unto itself, which most people are unsophisticated about. So you have these huge piles of money, both individuals, but pensions, etc. And not only do they have to stay up with inflation, if you put the money in the bank, you are actually losing money. Right. So it has to be invested. Traditional investments, bonds, etc., are paying very low rates right now. Stocks are inherently uh, volatile, and a good investor has a balanced portfolio. What do we know about songs? There is an actual asset. It will never go to zero. What is the value of that asset? Well, we've been told since the internet that internet, Napster, all the stuff is killing the music business. Now, 20 years later, people can see that that is untrue. Primarily that because there are so many uses of music. Some of the, we're still fighting this war. Streaming the war is fault. We'll get to that back. But TikTok, use on Facebook, use on YouTube. There constantly are more ways for music to be mu- used such that the value of copyrights is increasing. Then you have this huge pile of money saying, how can we get a better return? Here we hit an X factor. We saw this forever in the movie business. They took Wall Street money, they took third-party money, and they fucked them. Can we use that word on this podcast? We can. Okay. In that, these are very sophisticated businesses. However, music publishing, to understand the way you get paid, uh, just to say, you get paid when records are sold. There's publishing, and then there's also the right to record the record recording on the other side. You get paid in streaming, you get paid in advertisements, uh, that is a negotiated price. So, uh, classically you had the doors in Cadillac, they wouldn't do it, but Led Zeppelin did it for millions. They licensed their song. And in the rest of the world, unlike the United States, uh, recordings and publishing get paid when you something is played on the radio. On the internet, that's probably that's pretty much the same. But in the United States, the recording person does not get paid. So what happened was there's a limited number of catalogs available. Investment money said, "Hmm, can we get a bigger return on this?" 
such we had this company Concord. Concord, its uh, investment monies first started with recordings, then went to publishing. Now, the big run-up has really come in the last couple of years with Merck Mercuriatus, who's been in the, he's a Canadian guy, been in the business forever, as a manager, et cetera. He started a new publishing company called Hypnosis. If you know your old album covers, he asked whether he could use that name. He is using investment money, okay? However, he is buying 100% of the rights usually has a formula and if it's unbelievably successful, you get a little bit more of a payment. Okay. So he was the one who's buying hundred percent rights and it drove the price up such that we're in a window where prices for publishing a multiple, the multiples higher than ever before multiple to use an example. Uh, if you take it a million and there's a multiple of five, that would be your assets worth 5 million. Used to be maybe in the neighborhood of 10. Now we're at 15. So this is a once in a lifetime thing. Now on a business level, you could also say, hey, look, things are valuable once and then they're done. Look at gateway computers, you know, made a lot of money. Then it was over. However, there will always be payment on these songs. But on old songs, will that payment go down? Also, as we gain new avenues of exploitation, will the overall pie grow? So let's look at the recent cases. Stevie Nicks, she has no obvious heirs in that she's not married and she has no kids. Of course, she has heirs. She can leave the money. So she can cash in for $80 million. Chances are she lives another 10, 20 years. She's never going to make $80 million in publishing. However, the asset will be worth something, but she'll be dead. So she's taking the money out now. So this high valuation as a result of Mercuriatus and the bidding and the age of these acts is causing the sale. Let me just go back to streaming music payments on the recording side. People always say Spotify and Spotify is a big kahuna, although they're all essentially the same. Spotify is the devil. Let me explain this. Spotify pays essentially 60 to 70 cents on every dollar to rights holders. If you know business, it doesn't scale. The reason car business was so big is Henry Ford came up with the assembly line, such that costs go down. With right. Spotify, the costs continue to rise. So, they are not inherently the devil. Who are you paid for? If you own your own material, you're getting to 60 to 70 cents on every track. Most of these aged acts who are bitching, they have record deals where they may see pennies on a dollar, which is unfortunate, but it's not Spotify's fault. The so other thing about Spotify, there was some bad I'm going to spend one more sentence and then I'll go. Spotify is a totally transparent system. If people are listening, you get paid. If they're not, you don't get paid. Historically, there were a lot of acts propped up by record companies. Now those same acts, we see listenership is relatively low. They're making less money. Well, you know, the thing is that there were some bad optics by the, the CEO of Spotify a few months back going, well, you, be you guys better get to get to work. You know, and, and you can't just put out records once every five years. And there is an algorithm. There is the 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 the, the haves and the have nots. You know, it's like it's like there's a we have a we have a we have a station or a playlist on our on our, our page. And I get requests all the time when, hey, can you put can you put my song on your page? And I'm like, okay, no problem. It to me it's just it's a phone call. You know, 
But the thing is, if you look at the top line, there's always going to be the Beyonce's. There's always going to be the Frank Ocean's. There's going to be the big acts that that once again, just like on the in in a in the ASCAP pool, you know, it's it's like there's the those are the ones that get paid. I think the people that are bitching moan mostly are the ones that can't figure out how to scale it, and they're seeing whatever whatever physical record sales that they used to rely on and now touring, which is now completely shut down. It's, it's, they need a scapegoat for, for their financial woes because a, they don't own their masters and B, they don't, they don't really want to, to, to embrace this pennies on the dollar, you know, lifestyle. I mean, what, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, like, you know, is, is it part of the art artists have to get their head around it or is there some way to circumvent that? Well, first and foremost, and rock is the worst offender. If you want to make money in streaming, tell your fans to stream. The more that you vilify these people, it is actually hurting you. I have right. a lot of people say, well, I won't sign up for streaming because the act I am who I favor will not, uh, says to not to do it. That is a mistake. You want the opposite. You want everybody to stream. You say stream as much as possible. The other thing is unlike in the old days, people forget in the old days, the acts did not get paid in most cases. It's just like today. They had record deals such that they were in the hole even after they sold millions of records. So right. they did get initial chunks from the record company, but in terms of royalties, it would be done. Also, after their moment of fame, the records were not even in the store. Whereas today with streaming, you can continue to get paid. I Just addressing a couple of the other elements you say, Yes, there have been changes that have come along with streaming and the internet. In terms of streaming the internet, you can interact and motivate and expand your audience better than you've ever been done, been able to do before. And live gigs pay much better than they ever paid before. Yes, you have to go on the road to work and that's unfortunate, but things change in every landscape. In terms of... Uh, Daniel Eastman, uh, I tend to agree with him because, and you see this mostly with rock fans, they say, oh, I want an album. I want this and want that. What do we know about a fan, a true fan, not just someone who's surfing? They always want more from that artist. And it was starting in the seventies. They went to a one year, two year, three year cycle. And what they would do is a record company would have five singles and they would go until they've exploited it all over the world and then make a new record such that you might be in high school and love the act. The next time the act has a record, you're married and have children. Right. Okay. So now the concept irrelevant of Daniel Eck of releasing music on a regular basis, <clears throat> I believe is the best way. When you, we put on an album generally speaking, and you can check all these statistics on Spotify. They're available to everyone. Uh, people only tend to listen to the two big tracks anyway. Now, where you are in the landscape, if you were a superstar, the funny thing is, unlike in the past, you release a stiff, it just disappears, it doesn't hurt you. Right. If you are on the other end of the spectrum, you may be working hard and have a limited audience. Growing your audience, even though the tools are available, is slower than it's ever been before. What do you think about um, rock music in general? I mean, I've I've been reading your 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 articles and and you know one of the things that um, that that I did notice is that uh, you know the way the way you the, the way you put it is like 
rock music has become derivative and and well i'm paraphrasing quite in, in some ways boring you know what does what does rock music need to do to kind of like light a fire under its ass so you know you know so it doesn't have to be kind of relegated to now well i'm a blues artist we've been relegated to the to the to the fringe since 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 okay since, but at least the fringe is better than it used to be as a result of the internet. at least you exist whereas right. it used to be you're like off the scale you know i hate to come up with some cliches but it does come down to the song primarily what do we know about the beatles let's start there their songs had a lot of melody and a lot of changes they sometimes started with the chorus they had a bridge in the middle. This is not rocket science. Whereas if you listen to what's called active rock, which at this point in time is the main rock format, and it skews hard towards metal, these basics tend to be lost. What do we also know about the Beatles? They were great singers. Speaking of Dylan, uh, I get an email from someone and they want to review on their music. At this point, I don't respond. And I had a bad, you know, because 10% of the public is insane. You just don't know which 10% it is. Someone who looks reasonable, you might say something and step on a landmine. But back when I used to respond, yeah, excuse 10%. me. Good. If you're getting only 10% emails that seem crazy, you're doing good. I like that. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about getting shit. I get a lot more shit than that. But... <laughs> I'll use it as an example. Someone, okay, a couple of rules of email. Someone who sends you a long email, most heartfelt, is usually the craziest person. It's funny that someone with the briefest email is most reasonable. But someone who seems reasonable, I can tell you bad experience after bad experience. If you say something reasonable to them that they don't want to hear, they will might take action on you. I can tell you example after example where they'll start telling everybody they know to email, blow up your inbox. They can, I don't want to give people any ideas, but just using this line, the getting back, someone sent me their record and I said it wasn't good enough. And uh, they said, what about the lyrics? And I said, well, the lyrics, you know, so says, uh, you know, well, Bob Dylan didn't have a good voice, but I said, yeah, but Bob Dylan was the best lyricist of all time. Yeah. So we could cover those things. So, uh, Chris Stapleton has a new record. Chris Stapleton works with this guy, Dave Cobb. He's in Nashville yeah. and these are very organic records, even household name rock acts. When you go to see on the, on the road, the backup vocals may be on hard drive. Never mind all the other sounds, etc. You look at it, listen to a Dave Cobb record. It is organic. So the more you focus, and I'm not saying this to blow smoke up your ass, the more you focus on the inherent blues elements and you get a great singer and you have changes and it's honest, not that there's a problem with electronic music, not that you can never use synths, but people tend to add those layers in. The other element I must say is it's so easy to market these days that people are experts market as opposed to playing their instrument. I read a book that said Dwayne Allman used to take his guitar to the bathroom. I don't think anybody practices that hard anymore. Well, yeah, that's the one thing too, is, is the, the prevailing narrative. It's like you, you know, like when I was coming up, you know, 20 years ago, I mean, like you have to sound like John Mayer, you have to sound like this person, you have to sound like, and then it's kind of continued for the last 20 years where everybody feels they have to chase something that's either on radio or that's popular. And then you get a guy like Chris Stapleton who just, comes out with an acoustic guitar and incredible voice and, and, uh, and armed with the, that pesky thing called a song. 
and changes the landscape. And it's and it's it's a real lesson because it's 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 easy in some ways to get caught up in following the trends and trying to stay relevant within the trends, but to do something in your own lane is 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 hard and it's risky, you know. And and the the I think what Chris has done is is extraordinary, but that's why he's one of the biggest, if not one of the, the biggest country music act to come out in the last you know ten years. You know, he's a he will when he comes back, he will fill stadiums. I mean, in my opinion, because people want to hear that. They want to hear well, something. Well, the, the a couple of interesting things about Chris. One, he'd been around the block and he tried a lot of things. And therefore, when he finally made the record he wanted to make with the right person, that was it, as opposed right. to changing trends. The other interesting thing, when he had his initial breakthrough with Dave Cobb about five years ago, everybody in Nashville said it was the best work. And he won the big awards, okay? Right. So, to quote Leonard Cohn, everybody knows. Yeah. So tell me, like, you know, not a lot of people know. It's like, what got you started in music? What was what was the host? Who introduced the concept of music to you? Because I know you're an enter- you were an entertainment lawyer. You 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 ran sanct- sanctuary records, but you know, there's there's always that host going here. Here's a record. Was it? Uh, it in was the- really. It was really my parents. My mother, who recently died, was real culture vulture, and had that in concert with my father. They met hitchhiking back. My mother was hitchhiking and my father picked her up coming back from Tanglewood, which is the original shed in the United States. Legendary place still in existence today, Western Massachusetts. So needless to say, they can never say we couldn't hitchhike back when that was a thing in the sixties and seventies, but their relationship was rooted in music in the fifties. It was primarily show tunes and the show tunes were always on the stereo in my house. Right. In addition, my mother would buy us some records. She bought Four Seasons, Big Girls Don't Cry, etc. So when you first had a transistor radio, which was the iPod of its day, you listened to baseball, you listened to sports. Right. But then it evolved into music. And when the Beatles came along, it was turbocharged. The difference with the Beatles was prior to the Beatles, there was a folk scene much bigger than people realize. We even had folk on TV called Hootenanny. And a lot of people had guitars, but they had folk classical guitars with gut strings. You know, they're very hard to play. And then the Beatles come along and with electric guitars, which are much easier to play, everybody forms a band, as did I. And I said this many a time, and though I continued to play for a while, I was playing with a friend of mine. He goes, well, now we're going to change keys. And I said, I'm out. You know, it's like, I'm not that good. But music drove the culture. If you wanted to know which way the wind blew, you listen to music. The landscape was completely different. All of these things come together in that there was a middle class such that you could live on minimum wage. Today, if someone is intelligent and educated, their number one fear is they will be left out economically. Such a graduate from college, they go to work for the bank. They're worried about their career. I graduated from college. I was a ski bum in Utah. And none of my friends took a legitimate job. It was a different era, but also it was driven by radio. And I don't want to lionize radio too much, but radio was the drum, the tribal drum. They had your news. That's where you found uh, everything out. In addition, the music kept evolving and the music, rock music pretty much evolved through the early nineties 
when we had grunge. There were a lot of steps along the way. Then hip hop started to dominate on MTV. And then we had the internet, which blew everything wide open. Hip hop embraced the internet. They gave it away for free when all the rockers were saying no, no. And that's one of the reasons hip hop dominates today. But yes, my parents, there were always money. If I wanted to do physical, I had a big debate. But if I wanted to do a concert, I want to go to a movie, there was always money for that in my house. And uh, yes, I mean, then you go into the passion in that I had more records than anybody else. I would read, you know, there are all these rock magazines don't even exist anymore. It's certainly Rolling Stone, cover to cover, Fusion, Crawdaddy, Zoo World. It was really a passion. For people who are listening, I can analogize this to the internet really from 1995 to the year 2000, when everybody had to buy a computer just to be on AOL, never mind the beginning part of the decade of this century when people started to buy iPods, et cetera. There was a mania. Everybody paid attention. You know, that's the thing. It's like, you know, I remember going to airports 25 years ago, you know, especially if you were flying from Nashville or LA, you go into the magazine stand, all the trades were there. R&R, you know, you know, Billboard and, you know, everybody, you know, and you'd Rolling Stone and, and you'd read them cover to cover on the on the planes. And, you know, now it's just like you're hard pressed to find Rolling Stone in the airports anymore. It's or if it's not some like commemorative issue, you know. And to me, it's like, you know, when you you started the Left Sets letter 25 years ago, you were doing hard copies. You were sending right, them well, out. 1986, even lo- longer than that. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. So, you know, the thing is, so you were doing hard copies. Was that was that something like what I'm reading in these trades is not what's actually going on on the ground? And I want to, you know, you know, voice my opinion. Or was it just I want to get involved in, you know, being a broad, you know, like a, a well, now you're a broadcast journalist, but, a, you know, in, in journalism Okay, in terms of why I started the newsletter, I'll run through it pretty quickly. I was in college. I wanted to be a writer. I went to a college. There was only one one writing teacher. He wrote sea stories poorly, and he told me something that I wrote about going to Alice Cooper concert on the Killer Tour uh, in Boston. He said it was good, but it needed a twist. And I said, this is 1972. You've ever heard of the new journalism? A twist? Forget it. Then I was working with Sanctuary Music, which was Wasp and Iron Maiden at the time, and we hired independent publicists, and the publicists couldn't write. They had to write bios, and I would always have to rewrite them. Then I was without a job. I went to a job counselor, and she gave me this essay book. She said, you got to write six essays about yourself, brag about yourself, and in writing them, 12 years later, I got back in touch with the fact that I really wanted to be a writer. So then I sent some articles to newspapers and magazines. And when the rejections come back, even from the top people, you realize, wait a second, this is like the music business. You have to know these people. Right. So in the spring of 86, I was reading Billboard at a hamburger joint that no longer exists at uh, Sepulveda and Pico. And I said, this is terrible. I could do a better job than this. And I started the newsletter primarily to get another job. Now, it came out every two weeks, and it was primarily analysis in that, you know, why did things happen as opposed to facts? What surprised me was the most successful people in the business subscribed. The people at the top, they can hear something contrary, where usually people further down the food chain are drinking the Kool-Aid, such that everybody wanted to meet me, everybody knew me, I established a business. 
In terms of the internet in the year 2000, that happened by accident. One, I had a free subscription to AOL in 1992 or 93 from Warner Brothers. And don't forget, you used to have to pay by the minute. Such when the mania hit in 1995, from there to the year 2000, I was online incessantly. And I had a couple of steps that there was a famous message board I was on there that didn't really work out. But there was a book about David Geffen called The Operator in the year 2000. And friends of mine worked for the publishing company and they sent it to me. I had it a weekend before the general public. And I wrote about it. And I could suddenly see the virality. So people were paying for subscriptions. I waited for subscriptions to run out before, and I didn't charge anybody more to give it away for free. I waited five years to open up the mailing list to everybody. It used to be my original uh, print subscribers, then if you emailed me, because I was ahead of the curve of a lot of stuff that people are aware of now, like hate. Okay, I would talk to my psychiatrist about hate. They They have no idea what I'm talking about. Whereas now Jimmy Kimmel even does live hate tweets on his television set. But there was not a plan. And as a result of not putting money first, this was much more to me. Suddenly I could reach people all over the world. And I did. And opportunities came up and still do far exceeding what I charged. Let's use an example of Patreon. Uh, the, one of the guy, two, one of the two people in Pompamoose started it. Patreon is essentially where you subscribe, possibly at different levels, to support the artist. I have no problem with that, but just like with Kickstarter, no one has gone bigger from that. If you are an artist, the number one thing you want beyond money, and only Gene Simmons contradicts this, is to have people experience your art. And if your art is good. Let me change that in today's world. If your art is great and you persevere, people will spread the word. Um, There's this Mozart pianist, Asian expert, legendary Mitsuka Uchida. And there was a quote in Newsweek, which I cut out and unfortunately I lost. And she goes, she tells all her students to practice and practice really hard to become great because there are very few great things out there and people will find you. We're all sitting online all day. When we find something great, we immediately send it to other people. Right. So in terms of uh, the benefits of giving it away for free of the internet, I'm one of these people that it worked for me. So question, what do you think about the pandemic, you know, I call it the pandemic pivots in the sense that there, you see a lot of artists going to Patreon. You see a lot of artists basically doing the pajama concerts in their, in their, you know, in their living rooms. Do you think that's good or bad for the brand long term? If you, if you, you know, is it good to stay in the public's face and say, listen, it, we can't play gigs right now. So here I am in my pajamas and I'm going to sing a couple of songs or I'm going to do some odd covers or I'm going to do, you know, we're going to do a subscription based on, uh, you, know, pay, uh, you know, Patreon. Do you think that is a, a good long term strategy when the stuff does open up? OK, there is a, there's a lot of things there. Let's just assume that you are someone who A, has money, which is a big if. Mm-hmm. Paul McCartney's coming out with a new album, McCartney 3. He started it just because it was COVID and he put something together. Right. I think this is a great time to work on your art. 
Yeah. On the other end of the spectrum is people who can't survive. Yeah. That's a very deep question. Let's leave that aside. What you were talking about, the number one thing is credibility. This is something that has been pushed aside. If you are a legitimate artist, everyone has been in the business, someone will come to you and testify and say, essentially, I was going to commit suicide, but I was listening to your records and they got me through. When you do an endorsement deal, I'm not talking about the musical instrument manufacturer, but when you whore yourself out for a commercial on, you know, uh, laundry soap, et cetera, that does hurt your image. The classic example being your Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Young. Young never whored himself out. He could sell light years more tickets than the other three together. So if you are doing something online to bond with the artists and there are never issues of credibility, go for it. We're in the era where mystery is history. Everybody's been brought down from the pedestal. We see everybody's human being. You go online, fine. In terms of events in charging, that's fine. Okay. But if you're doing something like Melissa Etheridge was, I'm not sure if she's still doing it, where essentially you're charging for a concert every week, then it looks like you're doing it for the money and it's not an event. And I work against that. I also believe page, you know, there, this is one of the problems with the business today. People can't say no. Sometimes you have to say no. Is there low hanging fruit on Patreon? Yes. But essentially, you're taking yourself out of the mainstream discussion and you are saying, oh, uh, I'm a desperate person trying to milk my hardcore fans. You know, a good example is Howard Stern. He refuses to sell merch. He's leaving a lot of money on the table. But he says, I am paid. Essentially, they pay him about 80. They, he's been through two contracts. First was $100 million a year, $80 million a year. That's not all net because he has to pay some expenses. Yeah. But he says... I'm making enough money. I don't have to rip off my audience. Yeah, that's a very good point. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, you know, we've we've developed a of you know very highly successful you know merchandise you know site on our on our website. But to be honest with you, you know, we found that people like the they like to buy tchotchkes, and and we don't do it to fleece the fans. We do it just because. You know, people are going, hey, you know, where'd you get that Nerdville T-shirt? Like, well, here, you can have one, you know, and and you know, and there's a fine line between credibility and and I and I sometimes struggle with, you know, my manager be like, hey, this is this this is a little bit we're we're getting we're getting close to the line. We've never crossed it, but we're getting getting close to the line. You know, tell me about like you know when you said it's important to say no. I read an article you wrote about Relics Magazine and Bruce Hornsby. And and one of the things that people journalists always ask me, like they're like, give me an artist that I wouldn't guess in a million years that's influenced you heavily. I go Bruce Hornsby. I love Bruce Hornsby. I've loved him since the '80s. I love the way he kind of pivoted in the '90s and the 2000s. And you wrote about it, going, you know, he decided to give up his pop career and join the Grateful Dead, and 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 kind of, you know 
set himself up for a career's worth of like being in a niche market. Tell me about your, you know, some of your opinions on like, you know, the jam band scene and and having a niche market because it's not all just being a, you know, you, there's there's only one Billie Eilish, there's only one Chris Stapleton, there's only one Bruce Springsteen. This is the iconoclast of pop music. Not a, not all of us get to get to ascend that that top level. The the but there's a huge undercurrent of niche markets out there that that you know draw big crowds. I being one of them, or at least I used to. Okay, there are a couple of things here. Let's start with Hornsby. I was doing a podcast with a legendary DJ, electronic musician, and he's gotten very serious paydays. I was asking him about a serious payday on the millennium, etc. And I said, "Can you get paid that money today?" He still works today, right. says, but to get paid that much money, he would need to reinvent himself. Right. What do we know about most of the biggest acts plying the boards today? They had a very successful window mm -hmm. and they are continuing to milk that window. Right. There are some people who've done the opposite. Madonna being a classic example, even Dylan, their fans hated them, but they had to live to what they wanted to do. Same thing with Hornsby. Okay. At the time when he went to work, was putting his solo career on hold to work with the Grateful Dead, it looked like a career killing move. Right. But by following his gut, things ended up giving him a longer career and very close adherence. In terms of the jam band scene itself, the progenitor here is the Grateful Dead, where the records were always just a blueprint. When yeah. you went to the show, they never played the records faithfully. It was just a structure. And in addition, there were certain songs they would play before they were recording. So jam band musics, okay, and their festivals is a living, breathing thing. Mm -hmm. Sure, you might want to hear certain songs when they perform, but it's about going to the performance and it's one and done. And we've also been proven, what, forgetting the COVID era, which is so crazy, it is very different on screen from being there. People have tried this for decades and have not been able to succeed. Actually being there is different. Yeah. So when you have these acts, there is a business. What people don't realize is, and this has been a big change prior to the uh, internet era, let's just call it the year 2000, every couple of years there'd be a new sound that would wipe out what came before. Just like the Beatles wiped out the crooners, grunge scene wiped out hair metal. Right. And one thing in the last 20 years, we have not found a new scene, which is kind of amazing. So if you are a unique artist doing it for yourself, there's a chance you could be the next thing. Now, the difference using a band like Queen, signed by Jack Holzman, nothing in America, nothing sounded like that. But the circle was smaller. You were either inside the circle or out. Either you had a major label deal or not. Whereas right. today, the major labels are only interested in what's in the Spotify top 50. So to get through the clutter and get your noise, get your sound heard is incredibly difficult. But you never know when your moment may come. And let's look at Metallica. Metallica was seen as a metal. And then they put out the Black Album. And yeah. now they can sell stadiums decades later. Okay. Granted right. you had MTV and they had a certain, but there can be that moment of spark. Once you start chasing trends, you say you're done. If you're an artist and you're in the Spotify top 50, would you suggest in 2020 signing to a major label today? These are all 
banking deals. Most of the acts signed to the major labels today had a footprint online before. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it becomes about numbers. What do the major labels have? They have money and relationships. Now more than ever, you can make the money by yourself. But get in the newspaper, get on TV, get on the radio. They have those relationships. First, you have to ask yourself, <laughs> do I make the kind of music that's going to get on the top 40 radio, going to be on TV and the newspaper, if not never sign with a major label? They probably don't want you anyway. Right. But if you, and essentially, it's the only thing that we're interested in now is hip hop and pop, such that if you are a hip hop artist like Lil Nas X, and you have one successful record for market share and other reasons, they will pay you so much money and they will actually license the record such that you get it back. So on some level, they're almost daring you not to take the money. Right. So that's inherently an evanescent art form. You're playing guitar. You've been playing it for decades. You'll play until you retire. It's not about, oh, I had one hit. I milked that. I played all these shows. I'm done. So these are two very different worlds. You know, Chance the Rapper, he did it for a long time. It's hard because, although it's easier than before, because without a steady stream of product, it's hard to keep the intermediaries uh, motivated, whether they be at radio or print or Spotify itself, but it can certainly be done. You know, one of the things um, that I've noticed, and um, it was just because I was out driving this morning and um, I... I live in Laurel Canyon here in Los Angeles and I have to drive up Laurel Canyon Boulevard from sunset and they just closed the Chase Bank. Okay. Which has been there since the fifties. It was had a few different names and it was really the epicenter of the sunset riots. And I think like 1967 yeah, Pandora's box. Yes. And, um, you know, and I can't, and I, and they just, they just, they kind of boarded it up. They closed it. They took the signs down. They're going to demolish the whole, um, the whole the whole shopping center and put up yet another condominium that I don't know who is buying or why they would want to buy it there. And I couldn't help but think about for what it's worth. It's where Stephen Stills was caught in traffic. That's what came to mind with me. Coming up to Laurel Canyon where he lived, you know, I, the, their whole thing was as the crow flies about 1,500 feet from where I'm sitting. And, you know, and then I, I started thinking about it because I was going to talk to you and I was like, politics in music it seems like it's back in the sense that back in the 60s all the songs were protest songs especially coming from you know crosby stills and nash and young and you know and now it seems like there's a there's a there's a bit of there's a lot more politics in music than there was five years ago you know and and it's some of it i think is a positive and some I think is a little bit of a negative, and I'll tell you why I think it's a bit of a negative. I think it's a bit of a negative because if you don't agree with everything somebody's saying, it's like you're you're worse than whoever. You know what I mean? And how important do you think that is going forward? Because now it's like you know I have a major in music and a minor in activism, but the problem that I see is that you have to sign up for our entire platforms of activism, whether you agree with it or not. And I've always been agnostic politically because I like my audience and I don't need to preach to them. And I never will. I 
3,000 people, I have to assume 50% are one way, 50% are the other way, and, you know, whatever. And I'm just, I'm just here to play blues rock. You know, how important do you think that is going to be going forward to express your politics, not only on your social media, but within your music? Well, let's go back to that era, 1966-67, Pandora's Box, for what it's worth. For what it's worth would have been a great record with completely different lyrics. Okay. Ohio, which is the spring of 70, uh, CSNNY, that record was cut and put in the market six days later. That right. paradigm evaporated, but is now back. You can record it and have it out immediately. Right. The difference is, is a number one is not what a number one was. It used to be, if you had a hit record, everybody knew it. It doesn't mean they like it. But they could not avoid exposure. We were sitting to the radio to hear the songs we wanted to. We had to hear the songs we didn't want to. Such that if you write a protest song today, chances are it will not be picked up on a global level because unless you are literally a handful of artists, you can't even get to a medium level, never mind a macro level. So the right. terms of music driving the culture the way it did in the late sixties, probably not going to happen. Let's go back to the late sixties. Of course there was the war. And as it went on, people got older and they realized maybe it wasn't, they didn't believe in the cause. And as a result, Hey, they could question it. And the artists had a voice. We listened to the artists tell us what to do. It wasn't only about politics. Okay. Drugs or a million other things. Whereas today, most of the hit acts are so whored out for money. You cannot believe a thing they say in an era where you can't believe what politicians have to say. Right. So first it comes down to your identity. Secondly, in the late sixties, mid sixties, it was trending such that the entire generation was, let's just call it left democratic liberal, which is certainly not the case today. What do we know? The more you have an identity, the more people bond to you. In the United States, there's 330 million people. As soon as you try to appeal to everybody, you bland your statement to the point where no one can relate to it. Right. Now, you have to ask yourself, is this you? Okay, Brian Adams, unbelievably successful in the mid-80s with Reckless. He went on, did Rainforest concerts, said he had to do a political album. There's some great uh, songs on that album, Into the Fire, etc. But in reality, was he someone who's making political statements? Whereas Sting was making political statements from day one. Going very broad, if you're not willing to alienate, I mean a person in general, part of your audience... You're fucked because that means people are not that bonded to you. But if you're artificially going into politics where most people are not going to hear your song and you think it's something that should be happening, you know, I would just say if you are an artist, whether it be you, I've talked to comedians about this, you should not be afraid to express your opinion if you have one. Right. If you feel that you're silencing yourself, that is not good but concomitantly don't feel that you must make a statement. Well, you know, the other thing is, I, you know, I always say the first viral uh, comment um, in the music business was John Lennon, we're bigger than Jesus. That really, that, that it still follows, you know, 40 years on. And 
but it used to be used to pick up a publication and if somebody would say something like controversial or, or, or something you didn't agree with, you shut the magazine, you moved on with your life. Now with social media, you can immediately comment and you can see how other people comment and then you could pile on and people love what I found is people love a pile on. They love to try to take down somebody in a position of, of, you know, whatever influence and without any regard of the backstory, the context or anything like that, you know, and then we get this thing called cancel culture, which people are like, you're looking up my eighth grade essays, you know, I mean, this is, it's, you know, so I think there's a, there's a, there's a, a generation of musicians like myself um, who go, I, I didn't get it. I, I, I've never been an activist. I have political opinions. Okay. But I, but I do this, I do my, my, my exercise, my activism is I vote. And the thing is, there's a generation of musicians going like, listen, I just spent, spent my whole life on this. And if I, and if I say something just slightly out of the, out of the lane, just slightly out of the lane, or if it's something's taken out of context, the, the pylon will be so massive that, that, that either I'm forced out of the business or I'm, or I'm, I'm basically, you know, I, I, I got something pinned to my back for the, for the, for the rest of my life. I mean, like, what do you say to those kind of artists that are just like, an, I, I'm not willing to risk it because this is not what okay, I Okay, there are a couple of things here. Anybody with a, pro, if you don't get hate email, you certainly haven't made it and you're on the fringe of arts. Because if you play, you're going to get hate in email. And certainly having been in it by, at the beginning, just by luck, I didn't plan this. I was getting all this hate email. What you find is you have to ignore it and then it dies out. There are certain people who live pylon. It's different from cancel. As a big left, left winger myself, the fact that you have trigger warnings for books and colleges, that is just insane. Okay. Cancel culture. Uh, yes, there was somebody, uh, just recently who wrote something, you know, from the, I can't come to right now. What you did, can people recover? The problem is since we're not allowing people to recover, people are not being honest. It's like people are afraid to say things because it might come back to haunt them. I agree with you totally there, but if you are a person, let's go to the number one issue in terms of love relationships, which are inherently private. If someone doesn't say what they feel, the relationship dies. I've lived that relationship. Oh, we get along great. Then finally someone says what they truly feel and you hear four or five years worth of BS and it's the end. Okay. So you have to know yourself. So therefore let's assume this is an artificial comment. Let's assume you're doing a show for 3000 people and there are literally riots outside the door of the building. Mm -hmm. Theoretically, you may have no opinion, but this is top of mind for you to make a statement. And as you say, some of these are really, you know, people think tribe when like when it comes to cancel culture, you know, there are a lot of people on the left who think it's insane along with the people on the right. Right. So it's like George Floyd. Hey, is there a problem with, uh, you know, African-Americans <laughs> using a bad term, getting the short end of the stick to take a stand on that. How offensive is that really? You is know, it? so, but it's also, that is okay. I did a podcast last week with Paul of Peter, Paul and Mary, Noel Paul Stuckey. And at the end of the seventies, 
he essentially became an, a Jesus freak. Okay. Now, sort of at the end of the run of the band, it also kept him alive. Being on the road, being a star is very difficult, but he reflects now and he says, I got in everybody's face with God and it turned people off. I found a way to send the message with the same feelings without being alienated. Right. Alien, you know, out alien. So it's the same type of thing. If you, if you cast it in the terms of trust, credibility, human rights, that's different from saying Trump, you know, Pelosi, et cetera. But I understand it's a tricky thing. But the other thing is. It's a, it's a slippery slope because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, like if, if you, if you got into the business to be an activist, you know, like, you know, like, like Bruce Springsteen, Bonnie Ray, right. Jack Brown, the original no nukes crowd. These, they were writing songs since the downbeat with a message and stuff like that. But now it seems like there's a bit of like, well, you, you got to get on board or we're going to, we're going to come, we're going to find some contradictory statement and we're, and we're, and we're going to cancel you. I mean, speaking of riots outside of venue, 2006, 15, I'm playing a show at the Flynn Center in Burlington, Vermont. We fly in um to vermont is the beginning of the tour we sitting at the hotel bar having having a meal and getting ready for the thing and they have msnbc on and the night before trump had 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 given a speech or no that night trump was giving a speech at the flynn center okay and all i could see are these people protesting outside of the venue and then tomorrow night joe bonamassa for like six hours you know and it was like, you know, it was the first time I saw, like, in real time, like, if you take it to an extreme, you know, you will have, you will absolutely have problems, you know, going, you know, going forward with a career because there's, the, there's a, there's a point where you, you're not forgiven. Well, you know, if you're the, first of all, the news cycle is so fast. Let's talk about ticket prices. Okay. Discussing with Michael Rapino, who runs Live Nation, there is a very vocal minority that believes they should be able to sit in the front row of a show for 50 bucks. There aren't enough of those seats. They are the ones complaining. The irony being that most of the other people, if they want to sit in the front row, either they join the fan club or they go to a, a, um, uh, scalp or whatever. Same thing when it comes to beating up on X. Certainly somebody can say something that is really a lightning rod. Right. But I really don't think that the majority of the artists, uh, majority of the audience is such that if you say just one thing, they're done. I just don't believe that. And I believe it's hard. We, just one thing. We are all at the center of our own universe. And therefore, it's hard for us to perceive what is going on externally. And even though I, you know, it's like Twitter, people say something heinous on Twitter and he goes, well, why don't you go to their, uh, site and you'll see they have zero followers. So essentially they're preaching to you. Okay. Right. And if you don't say something, forget, you know, you can't amplify it. Well, you know, the thing is, you know, like in terms of ticket pricing, there, there is there is a I call it well, there's a loud minority of people that will not only go. I want to sit in the front row for 20 bucks or 30 bucks or whatever I feel like paying. But the gate, the door has been open in the sense of like, hey, we're going to do this show. Just, you know, we're going to do it on a donation kind of basis. And and and, you know, if you feel like paying us something great, that's it's basically opening the door to major league flex pricing going well, you know, 
here's the here's a here's a show. You still want me to blow stuff up on stage. You still want the big light show. You still want the screens and all the all the bells and whistles. But you but you want a flex price because that's somehow you know because Carvana can do it. All of a sudden, a touring act can do it. It doesn't to me. Ultimately, that's you're de you're 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 devaluing something that people worked hard to get. And 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 the minute you you go out with less lights, less smoke, less fire, whatever. You know, people go, oh, you know, you know, it's it's over and, you know, and stuff like that. And then you do you do you st you st start seeing diminishing returns. You know, it's, it, there's a critical mass where you cannot reinvest in yourself if there's nothing to reinvest. I agree with everything you're saying, but just using the term flex pricing and there are varying meanings to that. Generally speaking, we talk about the airplane model. Forget that you pay a different price from everybody else. If you are a relatively frequent flyer, let's assume you fly Southwest. Right. The extra 15 or $20 to be in the first 30, I pay that all the time. Okay. 100%. Yeah. Okay. Same thing, you know, on certain airlines, I have status, so I get the extra leg room and coach, but it's like, I'll pay, even though I feel somewhat ripped off. Okay. Yeah. So, when it comes to the value of a ticket, we don't know. So if an act is selling out the venue, the question always arises, did they leave money on the table? Bruce Springsteen's argument is, I'm inherently leaving money on the table to further my career. Right. Then there are acts like the Rolling Stones the promoters, Concerts West, who want to maximize the revenue because no matter what, the stones will sell out. So right. they are doing it like the airlines in order to get the biggest price. But there is a cost. But what do we know with the stones? Every time they go on the road, people say, this literally could be the last time. Right. So that's different from a, from a regular act. This is what the act gets to choose. But you can't have it both ways. You can't say I'm underpricing and then complain when the scalpers uh, get a hold of the tickets. You can do the best you can, but you cannot eliminate that. It's been proven. You can't. And, and you know, it's there's always going to be a tertiary market for all of this kind of stuff. Um, before we wrap up, give me, your, give me your thoughts on the Grammys. There was a little controversy uh, when, the, when the nominations came out about uh, an act uh, uh, named The Weeknd who had a pretty big year in the business, but was kind of shut out of the Grammys. Do you, the nominating process, do you think there's a need for reform there? Because it does seem to me a little bit, most of the times, it's, it's a little out of touch with reality. You know, they, they'll, they'll pick and choose obscure artists that don't, that don't you know, which is, which is great, but then the ones that are so obvious that are having the banner year or their, you know, peak year and then just somehow get shut out, you know, in the committee and, and just their names don't come up. I mean, what are your thoughts? Well, when it comes to the Grammys, unfortunately, most of what people have heard is true in terms of the shenanigans. Let's start with the Grammys themselves. They were certainly came to into fruition 50 years ago, 60 years ago at this point in time, uh, long after the Oscars. If you look at Woody Allen, who won for Annie Hall. He famously said, you can't judge art and he did not go. Forget how people judge Woody Allen today. Yeah. I am a believer in that. When it comes to the weekend, what are we saying? Are we saying the Grammys are about artistic integrity or sales? That's a big question. 
So right. what do we know? Mike Green, who was a musician in Atlanta, ran the Atlanta chapter of the Recording Academy. He became head of the Academy. And he stood up to the major labels. He stood up to cities. And the Grammy started to get some gravitas. This is the 90s into the beginning part of the century. He was replaced by a guy who comes from the label culture. And as the world changed, they missed it. They missed the internet. They missed hip hop. They missed uh, sexual harassment. Such that they hire a woman to run the organization and they kick her out. Okay. One thing they admit is she wanted to change too fast. Now you tell any minority group or anything too fast. And they, you, you know, you look inherently like an old fart right. for those people who know the nominating committees. Let's start used to there are a hundred categories. Why do people want to win a Grammy other than the top five categories? If you talk to these acts, they're very honest. They can put it on their bio such that it will increase their business to the end of their lives such that when they try to reduce Grammy categories, all the acts flipped out. Okay. Right. Now the only funny thing is now on the internet, when the music business has been flattened, there's so many categories, maybe there is a reason to have those categories. So you talk as a result of the, um, Metallica being beaten by Jethro Tull. And the funny thing is the stink is upon Jethro Tull. Ian Anderson didn't even go. It's not really his fault. Is that, is that they had these committees to realign the nominations. So inherently it's not pure. Everybody votes and they realign. And then it came out that these committees would do favors for other people who had their acts. Okay. Right. Such that what we see today is exactly what we saw prior to Mike Green. The nominations are out of touch with the people. Okay, the rock category, it's all women. I'm not saying women don't make good music, but have you overcorrected intentionally? In the major category, there are a couple of acts that essentially, unless you're in the business, you haven't heard of. Okay, and I... I know a lot about those couple of acts. Are they in the league of the weekend? No. Whether the we I'm not talking about I'm talking about artistically, never mind sales streaming wise. So you have to say it's a joke. So what you have is the Grammys are hanging themselves. The Grammys missed hip hop all these years. Uh, if you are an act such that they are debating those categories to a degree, not being nominated is to your advantage and not being nominated or not winning is to your advantage. The other thing is in the old days, there's we used to be a Grammy bounce started with Bonnie Raitt in 1990 after Nick of time. If you won, Okay. You got to get this great success. You sold all these albums, Lauren Hill, that no longer happens. So yeah. winning is not the big deal. And if you look at the history of who won, it is almost never aligned with the music that sustained that really impacted the culture. Best new artist. There was always that curse. If you won best new artist, you would, you were, you had about an 18 month, you know, shelf life and you were, you know, it was over, you know. You know, one of the things that I, I always, you know, when I watch the Grammys or when I, you know, participate in the voting, and I'm like, I'm glad to see all of it. You know, like a lot of my friends got nominated. My friend Marcus King got nominated this year. And I'm not trying to I'm not trying to take anything away from anybody who's nominated or who has won. Um, but I do notice similarities, 
especially in the in the roots categories, which I put myself in the roots categories of blues, Americana, whatever, you know. I do see labels that pop up all the time, you know, Concord, you know, these kind of, you know, and it's like, it seems if you're on those kind of labels, your chances of being nominated are higher than if you're running a mom and pop shop like we are or, you know, whatever. And, you know, and, you know, you get, you get, you get cats, you know, that, that don't, are never nominated, never even acknowledged and had great careers. And they're like, I don't know. I don't know what happened. You know, everything you're saying, everything you're saying is true, but let me give you an example. I'll leave names out. There's a household name act that never got into the rock and roll hall of fame. They switch management companies, not for this reason. Okay. But the manager said, I'll get you in the rock and roll hall of fame, which is what happened. Okay. Right. So, you are in an independent business, assuming that a Grammy was that important to you. Right. There'd be a way to play that game. Okay. Oh, yeah. But inherently you haven't been playing that game. And as we all say, think of all the great artists who haven't won Grammys. I look at it the other way. When anybody tells me about the Grammys I want, they won, I roll my eyes. And in addition, uh, artists who've won Grammys, a great percentage of them never mentioned. It's unfortunate in, in obituaries and in big business stories, they do mention that, you know, the Grammy position would be getting the organization and help fix it. I don't believe in that. I think management is so entrenched that it needs to be replaced. Let's start from the beginning. The organization survives on a big check from CBS. How much longer can that go on? Ratings keep going now, whatever. So at some point, there will be a point of reckoning. But they refuse to have that now. So in terms of inequities, it goes on and on. I'm on the same page as you. You know, that's the, that's, that's the thing, you know. I mean, I, I do have two loser medallions that I wear around the house. You know, a couple of, couple of nominated but, you know, and again, it does it does help your business to put it on the poster Grammy nominated artists. And, and that's really it's, it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a soundbite. Before we go, you know, Bob, I just um, I just want to thank you for 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 being here. And, and uh, you know, and again, I, I was so I was so blown away, you know, about four months ago when everybody texted me like Bob left sets. He 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 wrote about your new song. I'm like. I don't even know who I am. So, I mean, I'm just really thrilled that you were here. And, and again, we could we could talk for three and a half hours just about the amps alone. But, um, you know, and uh, thank you. Thank you for being a friend. And thank you for uh, what you do for the music community, because you're I read your columns and it's like it's always spot on. You know, rarely do I disagree. OK, a couple of things. Believe me, I know who you are and knew long before that song. But the I'll use the example. Uh, you know, it's just as a classic example for what you said earlier, we're in an era where if you do anything that evidences money, people, people say, oh, it must be good. Right. Having said that, I will tell this story. I went skiing 15 years ago in South America. You go during the summer. That's the big thrill. We met these people from Texas. One person couldn't be less in the music business and knows almost nothing about music says, well, you know, we should fly to a city. We should go see Joe Bonamassa. <laughs> he constantly brings up Joe Bonamassa. Such that my girlfriend says, you know, what's the thing with him and Joe Bonamassa? Okay. Right. <laughs> and believe me, you don't know who this person is, but that is the nature of the business. 
He only, the only two acts he's ever mentioned to me are Joe Bonamassa and Kid Rock. He did go to see a Kid Rock show at this point, it's probably seven or eight years ago. He's mentioned that twice, but he mentions you to this day. So, <laughs> you know, when you're an act and I have the same thing creating, you were essentially at the eye of the hurricane. You're unaware of all the conversation externally. The other thing is your business model. You are really the only one doing it this way. And anyone who's in real business, I'm talking all the managers, all the agents, they know it. But don't forget, it is threatening in terms of the act, the, the agents. If they go that way, they're going to put themselves out of business. Uh, right. Same with the pro. So unfortunately, it's not getting more traction, will it? This is a business that always likes to exist on other people's money. Yeah. And I mean, unless you put your own money at risk, you cannot build something for yourself. No. And, 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 and getting the, the, I always tell people like when they say it's like, oh, it must be threatening to, I, I, it threatens no one who is not willing to bet on themselves. If the artists don't bet on themselves and put up their own cash to build the integrated, the, you know, the, the vertical integration, it, it's moot. They're gonna they're gonna take the big the big sums of money from Live Nation and they're gonna live happily ever after, which is great. Unfortunately, Mr. Rapino has not offered us the big sums of money, so we had to we had to do something uh, a rogue, you know. Yeah, but but the other thing about it is, they don't go ride happily into the sunset because they run through the money, whatever, and then they're bitching they have nothing, and right. then they're giving you shit. Then they're giving me shit, like or like well, how's the blues boy have the have. To, you know, twin fender snacks. I'm like, well, that's hard work and perseverance. That's those are the names. Well, as I say, there's always someone to bring you down. Okay, a manager said I had to read a book which I bought for my Kindle, and essentially, there's almost no starvation in the world today. That is not the problem. I remember growing up, my parents saying, "Oh, there are kids starving in Europe. You got to finish everything on your plate." So when people say, and "I'm digging my hole deeper here." When people say, hey, you can't talk about your mental health, or you can't talk about your amps, whatever, this is what life is about. I'm a big believer there should be a safety net. No one should go hungry. No one should be without a roof over their head. That is a very left-wing position. By the same token, I believe if you put in hard work and innovation, you should be able to reap the rewards of that. 100%. Now, you can't do that independently, such that you know, maybe your tax rate should go up, but you should be able to reap the rewards. So the fact that people are successful are seeing that people want to drag them down into the hole they're in, that's unfortunate. I don't think it should be that way. I think on some level, people should own their accomplishments. Exactly. I, I, I don't apologize for anything because I came from lower middle class and, and I, the, the deck was stacked against me. If, I, don't, I, don't, I consider myself lucky, but I consider myself a hard worker at the same time. Bob? Thank you very much for As this. As you say, we could talk for hours, Joe. Thanks so much for inviting me. Thank you for thank you for watching another exciting episode of Live from Nerdville. My guest has been Bob Leftsets. Thank you very much. Again, it's a, it's an honor and a privilege as always. Me too. Same deal back to you, Joe.